Okay, we are going to start today in Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> Let me just remind you that, that what we are doing is we're going through the chronological life of Jesus. So we're just picking up each passage uh, from the four Gospels. And the passage that we're going to be talking about today is actually in, in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <clears throat> and we'll be bouncing back and forth between the di- different Gospels because although this this incident that occurred is in three of the four Gospels. It's, it's, uh, some of the different Gospels pull different parts out. So, Matthew chapter 16, and you may remember that, that uh, last time he gave them this test, and if we look in, in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, it says, Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So, they understood this. So, they passed the test that we had gone over last week. They passed this test. And now what he's going to do is he's going to begin to share with them new things. And uh, there's going to be another test that's going to come up. <clears throat> so, let's turn to, uh, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 is the next incident that occurs. Uh, Mark 8:22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus, and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently, and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Okay, so, so this incident is actually only recorded in Mark. It is actually the only time that Jesus healed a person in stages that, that has been recorded. It's the only record of him healing somebody in stages. Now, we know that Jesus did many things that, are not yet, that were not recorded because the Bible tells us that they didn't record everything. So they were selective in what they were recording. This is the only person that was healed in stages. <clears throat> and as you can see, in this specific way, he, they, they asked him to touch this blind man and heal him. And remember, ever since the unpardonable sin, the ministry to Jews has only been in this way, that he will minister to them, not in a crowd, but individually. With the Gentiles, he continues to minister in the crowds. He's sticking to this pattern, and he doesn't vary from that. So he takes them aside, and then what he does, he, he uh, lays his hands on him, and he asks, do you see anything? And he says, I see, I, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. So he didn't see quite clearly, still myopic, in the way he was seeing. <clears throat> and then it says, and again, he laid his hands on his eyes, <clears throat> and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. So you see, at this point, he starts seeing clearly. So there was this two-phase ministry. <clears throat> this, <clears throat> this two-phase ministry. And why did he do this? Why did he do it in two stages? You know, it's interesting. Why not just do the healing just like that? Jesus had healed so many people. Blind people, it was no problem. Why heal in two stages? 
Maybe one of the reasons is that when we pray for people, we may see things gradually happen. Maybe it's so that we can see that, hey, Jesus worked like this too on one occasion. Or it could be for what's coming next. It could be the stages of spiritual healing that we're going to come into next. Because immediately after this, the next thing that happens is in this portion that follows. <clears throat> so if we look in, in Mark chapter chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? But, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them not to, and he warned them to tell no one about him. So, um, you see that, that he takes them to this town of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a Gentile town. <clears throat> so he moved from this Jewish town. And remember, after he healed this person, he said, Don't go back and tell anybody. The same sort of ministry of silence. Among the Jews, there was no ministry. It was just a ministry of silence. It was to individuals and no longer masses. But now he moves into a Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi was just into the Gentile territory, there by the Sea of, of Galilee. And he, he goes there. And it, it's, it's interesting because if we, if we look at some of the geography, because the geography is going to be important, this town of Caesarea Philippi, is a town where there's this huge cliff rock, and it's right by this huge cliff rock. You can go on the internet and see this, and, and uh, this city has been built. There used to be a river that would flow right out from underneath that cliff. And that river is the Spanias River, and it would flow right out from underneath the cliff. And as it would flow out, it would break stones off, and there were always these small stones underneath the cliff. So a whole riverbed of small stones that had been broken out over the many years as this river came out from under this cliff rock. About a hundred years ago, there was an earthquake that shifted the river. So the river now just flows just to the right of that huge cliff rock. This is going to become important as we look at the words that Jesus is saying and how he's relating it to that area. So he asked them, he said, who do the people say that I am? But I want to I look at, uh, just for a moment, at, at Luke. So right after Mark is Luke, Luke chapter 9. So the same incident that's occurring in Luke, in Luke chapter 9, and verse, verse 18. Luke nine eighteen. So this is the same incident, but there's one little treasure that's brought out here. Luke 9, verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, the one of the prophets of old, is risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Look at this little treasure in verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Is there an oxymoron there? He was praying alone and the disciples were with him. Praying alone and the disciples were with him. And as I reflected on this, this actually happens all the time in my own home. I will be praying and, and generally 
everybody's asleep upstairs and I'm downstairs praying and they may come downstairs and I'm still there praying and they're all around me. And in fact, when my children were young, very often, because often I'll pray on my knees, especially Ben, he would always climb up on my back while I was praying. And, And it didn't bother me and I was fine with it, but there were people around me, though I was praying alone. And this is this picture you get of Jesus, that he's praying alone and his disciples are with him. And they're milling about and talking. And Jesus is doing what he's always doing. He's just there praying. This is not unusual in my home. Where I'll be in a place praying and then people will end up coming around me. And I don't just retreat away. I mean, this is my family and they're used to it. I mean, they're just there praying. I mean, that's, that's just, just the way of life. But it's interesting. Why would Jesus feel so compelled to have to pray like this? Of course, we mere mortals have to pray and to seek God and implore God to do things here on earth. But why Jesus? I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. He can just speak a word and it's, it's done. We've seen this. But we get these pictures of Jesus that He was constantly praying. Jesus, it says in, in Mark, Mark chapter 1, that He would go off to a lonely place and pray while it was still dark. Jesus considered prayer important. So important that even when the disciples weren't praying, he was praying. I mean, the disciples were cool. I mean, when Jesus was taking care of everything. But he's praying. He feels the need to pray. And remember, when the, on the occasion where Jesus asked them to pray with him, they went to sleep, and he said to them, couldn't you pray with me for just one hour? Jesus felt prayer was really important. If you ever find in your heart... Because our hearts are are deceitful. If you ever feel in your heart that, oh, prayer doesn't really matter. God's going to do what He does. Just remember, that is not a thought from God. That is a thought from your wicked self or from the enemy. Alright? That is not a thought from God. Jesus demonstrated to us a life of prayer. So much so that He didn't say, oh, well, you know, I, I can't find a closet to go alone, so I guess I won't pray. No, He prayed. If you have a room and you have a roommate, pray. Your roommate comes in, just continue to pray. They'll get used to it. The first time they will. But they'll get used to it. This is the way of life. It is a way of prayer. Jesus felt it important. And remember, if ever you feel that it's not important, that is not a thought from God. He values this. We implore God. We ask God to work in the lives of people. Ask God to work in, the, in, in, in your schoolwork, in your life, in the people around you. There's nothing wrong with that. I have prayed so much over my schoolwork when I was in school, when I was in college, and when I was in graduate school. I used to have this, <clears throat> this exam every week in physical chemistry in my first year of graduate school. And, and uh, every week there was an exam. And I remember just constantly before God, Every Wednesday morning, because we would have this exam every Wednesday, that I was praying to God to help me. And I put this verse up behind the door in, 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 my, in the dorm room there. I was living in the graduate dormitories, and it, and it says, uh, um, Oh Lord, there is no one to help in this battle between the strong and those who have no strength. So, oh Lord, my God, help me. And I would pray this prayer. And uh, you pray. Learn to pray. Spend time in prayer. And one of the problems is we get into prayer, we really don't know what to say. So what you can do is you can take a list. I mean, take a list of people. Add me to that list. I would appreciate that. I really would. 
Take a list of people with you. So then your mind doesn't want you. You've got to get through this list. And pray for the people on that list. Pray that God works in their life. That, that God would draw them closer to Himself. You can pray for issues that you're going to be confronting that day. But if you go in and you don't have specifically a list, after a while your mind may, may start to wander. But if you have a list, you have to get through It can really help. Okay, now let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Back to Matthew chapter 16. So the same portion is there, but Matthew expands on it a bit more. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and He was asking His disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So He asks, his disciples, he says, who do the people say that I am? They say, you're John the Baptist risen from the dead, because remember, by this time John the Baptist had, had, been, had been put to death about a year earlier to this, and there were rumors that he had come back to life. This is what had scared, had scared Herod about this. But uh, um, others said Elijah, because Elijah is supposed to return. Others thought Jeremiah, one of the passages say, in, in the Gospels, so, or one of the prophets of old. <clears throat> so they, <clears throat> they recognized him as having some sort of spiritual authority, but they didn't equate him with the Messiah. This is what he came to demonstrate, that he was the Messiah. And remember, after the sin, the unpardonable sin, he no longer came with that message. So, here he was, and, and he, was, he, was, uh, he said, who did they say that I am? And they said, one of the prophets or Jeremiah. Then he turns in, 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 in verse 15 and he says, But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So now, now he's giving them this, this new test. He's now saying, Who do you say that I am? Remember this first test that he had just tested them with was about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of the Herodians, one of the Gospels say. The leaven of the Pharisees was that they had said, this claim that they had said that Jesus was demon-possessed. They passed that test, that they didn't believe that. The Sadducees was that he didn't believe in temple worship, that he was against temple worship, which was not the case. And the Herodians, that he was against Rome and he was going to destroy it. And at that point, he had no intention of being against Rome. Because remember, the Herodians were Jewish followers of Herod, who was was King Herod, who had uh, claimed to be a Jew. And so, now he's asking this other test. But if you look at this, it's a little bit different. Jesus, in... From what, you, what I've, I've read about what the Greek says, it says, Jesus said to Peter, and you, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? It's really emphatic, you. And then Peter speaks on, on behalf of them all. And Peter then says, Peter says on behalf of them all, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So it's quite emphatic in the Greek. They're speaking in this emphatic way. So, so Peter immediately responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ meaning the Messiah. That is what you are. This is what he, he says to them. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus' response to this is, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so he says to Peter, you could not have gotten that academically. 
You could not have gotten it academically. My Father who is in heaven has revealed that to you. There is a precious thing when a person comes to Jesus. And you can see it. You can see a person who doesn't know the Lord. And then they come to know the Lord and something happens. The light goes on and they come to know the Lord. Flesh and blood could not reveal this. But only His Father who is in heaven could reveal this. This is what He's saying. He's saying this is a revelation. Peter, speaking on behalf of them all, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very emphatic because Jesus had said, and you, who do you say that I am? Everything comes down to this. And the interesting thing is, many times when people don't know the Lord, they don't know that they don't know the Lord. I was once approached by, by some professors in the religion department that were upset that people were coming to me, students were coming to me for religious counseling. They should be the religious counselors of the university, they felt. And that people, why would students be coming to me for religious counseling? They are the religion professors. And if you just look at it academically, that's certainly true. They know a whole lot more academically than I know. But there's something that many of you realize that that's of the Spirit, that goes far deeper than what there is academically. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, Peter, you have something that flesh and blood couldn't reveal to you. Only my Father who is in heaven. If you have never had that point of revelation, if you've never had that, come to that point where there's been a revelation, and sometimes you see it in young people who may have grown up in Christian homes, and then some experience happens on a, on a retreat in high school. Or something happens at a, at a Christian concert. Or something happens in a particular church service. Where all of a sudden this light really comes on. That this is real. This is real. Something is here. For me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I had none of that. So that when I came to the Lord at the age of 18 on November 7th, 1977, something happened to me on that day. The light came on. I was all alone in my room. The gospel had been preached to me a few months earlier all alone in my room. And I asked God to forgive me because I'm a sinner. And I was on my knees. I said, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner and come into my life. And at that moment, it was something happened to me. I had been carrying this burden of sin and it just lifted. I felt clean. And I felt God was in my room. I even opened my eyes. It felt so real that a man was standing in my room. Something happened to me that day. Two weeks later, the guy who had shared with me asked me, he says, have you come to know the Lord? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, because you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me that day. Flesh and blood cannot reveal this. If you have never experienced Jesus inviting Him into your life, saying, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner, you need to do that. You come before the Lord in your own time, in your own room, and say, Lord, forgive me. Because I'm a sinner. Confess your sin to God. And He is faithful and just to forgive you of sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will do that. And just because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage makes you a car. doesn't. You need to come to a place. A place where you make that commitment yourself. Where something happens within. Jesus said, flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you. 
And this is why you can go to one for counseling versus another. One has the life of God living in them. The other does not. And there is a difference. I remember that before I knew the Lord, I opening up the Bible and trying to read it and understand, and I understood nothing. When I came to the Lord, it was as if just the Scriptures were speaking to me. God illumines our darkness, the Scriptures say. He illumines our darkness. So he says to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You are so blessed if you have this. If you have this truth, you are so blessed. If you understand, know and understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. This is blessed. At this point, they had not yet received the Spirit. It's different with us, and, and we'll go into more explanation of that. But you are so blessed if you have this. If you feel, oh, my life's such a mess, why am I even alive? If you know Jesus, you have so much, so much if you know Christ. Learn to walk in it. Your father is the king. And you walk around like a peasant. Remember, your father is the king. He said, blessed are you. You are so blessed, Simon Barjona. Simon, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, that means. You are so blessed. He says, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you, that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So he says to Peter, he says that, 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 uh, that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Remember what we said, Caesarea Philippi, huge cliff city. Underneath this huge cliff is this city. All around this, this cliff is this, this city is built. And then there's these small stones coming down. And Jesus says to him, he says, he says, uh, uh, you are Peter. Peter is Petros. That's the masculine noun meaning small stone. You are a small stone. There's small stones all around them in that place that have been broken off from this cliff rock because of that river that comes out. He says, you are Peter, this small stone. Peter is, is this, this Petros. He says, upon this rock, this rock in Greek, Greek is Petra, this big massive cliff rock, that is the feminine. And the masculine modifies the masculine, the feminine, the feminine, the neuter, the neuter. And this is the way it is. And he says, upon this big cliff rock, I will build my church. You are Peter, a small stone that is the product of this. Upon this rock, what I will build my church. Not I have been building, not I am building, but I will build my church. There's only two references to church in all of the four Gospels. Two times that they use this word church. This ekklesia in Greek. In, in Hebrew, they would have been speaking Hebrew. They would have said Kela. Kela. So when we speak to my little granddaughter who lives in Israel, we say, you going to Kela today? This is, that's the word that he would have been using in Greek, Ekklesia. I will build my church. It's not that the church was, has been being built since the time of Noah. It's not that the church is, was the real Israel. No. Israel was Israel. The church is the church. And the church, he says, I will build my church. The church is coming. And he makes reference to this. And he, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We've discussed this before, but let me go through this with you again. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gave something to Peter on that day. 
He says, I'm going to give you the keys to this kingdom. What were these keys? In Acts chapter 2, and I'll summarize this for you. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they had not, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on the apostles. They understood that Jesus was the Christ. They had not yet gotten the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on them. He preaches to the Jews. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and the Jews are saved. In Acts chapter 2, if you look in, look in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you see that Jesus gives them a commission, and He speaks of three territories. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even the remotest part of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Judea is this, so Jerusalem is the city. Judea is this state-like area. You're going to first witness me here. Then you're going to go up into Samaria. And then you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, meaning to the Gentiles. He gives them these three areas. Judea, Samaria, uh, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what he tells them, the remotest parts of the earth. He brings it into this. On this time in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on them. It says the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit came on them and then the Jews got saved. The door opened for Jews to get saved that day. And many Jews got saved and Peter was never needed to open the door for the Jews again after that day. If, if you look then in Acts chapter 7, there's an evangelist called Philip. Philip goes up into Samaria in Acts chapter 7. So now the gospel is being taken up into Samaria. It says they believed when he preached the gospel. They believed. But guess what happened? The Holy Spirit didn't come on them. What did they have to do? They had to go send for Peter. Peter goes and he comes up. He lays hands on them and prays. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And now never again was Peter needed to open the door for the Holy Spirit to fall on people in Samaria. Never again. Then what happens? Then in Acts chapter, chapter 9, Saul is converted. Remember Saul gets converted. Acts chapter 9. Saul, it says, God says of Saul, I am going to send him to the Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9. Guess what? No Gentiles came to the Lord until Acts chapter 10. Peter goes and he's told by God to preach in the house of Cornelius. He goes, he preaches in the house of Cornelius. And Peter opens the door for the Gentiles to get saved. They get saved. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And then never again is Peter needed to open the door for the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. Once the door is open, it is open. And after that, everybody who gets saved... As soon as they get saved, they get the Holy Spirit. And I know that there are churches and people that talk about that getting the Spirit is a separate experience. And that is fine. You can teach whatever you want and believe whatever you want. But I'm telling you, in the Scriptures, everybody, after Peter opened that door by praying for the Jews, never in the Gospels, you will not find it again, where the Jews had to have Peter present or received the Holy Spirit as a separate event. It always came at that instant for the Jews. Once the door was opened to the Samaritans, never again was Peter needed for the Holy Spirit to fall on the Samaritans. Once it was opened to the Gentiles, never again was it needed. Paul went out, he was preaching all the time. He didn't have to call Peter anymore for the Holy Spirit to fall. What's interesting though is in Acts chapter 19, you see one interesting passage in Acts chapter 19. 
There is an event, and this is many years later. This is this may be fifteen or twenty years later. In Acts chapter nineteen, verse one, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there was a holy whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about twelve men. This is the only time you see, after Peter opening the door, that this happened. It's interesting, these people didn't even know that Jesus died on the cross. They had been disciples of John. They had been baptized. Remember, John was baptizing many people. These people went off, and they went into this, this other part of the world. So they go off, and, and uh, Paul comes across them. He sees these are disciples, but he's thinking, disciples of what? He says, we're John's disciples. He said, oh, John was there saying that believe in him who he points out. Remember, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They weren't there anymore to see who, Paul, who, who John pointed out. And as soon as John points them out, everyone who, John, who, who heard John point them out, everyone received the Lord. John had a very effective ministry. That these people were already gone from that town. They said, we don't know anything about this. We haven't even heard about a Holy Spirit. And so he prays for them. This is the only instance we see when people had been baptized into the baptism of John and never even knew about the death of Jesus on the cross. So that's the only instance. Now let me tell you my own story in this because I don't know if you've, you've wrestled with this like I have. So I got, I got uh, saved when I was 18 years old and I got discipled in a church as an undergraduate. A great church I got discipled in. And very active in ministry. As an undergraduate, I used to go and visit particularly international students. I did open-air ministry, standing on campus, middle of campus. It would be equivalent to, say, where, 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 where uh, uh, Will Rice's statue is on, at Rice. I mean, that's central. And I would stand there and preach openly the gospel. So I did many things. And I loved the Lord. And I would pray for extended periods, praying that God would work in the lives of people. This I did as an undergraduate. Then I pray and I go to graduate school. My, I get to graduate school. God speaks very specifically to be a part of the, a particular church as I shared last time. And then as I'm in this church, this particular church, this new church I'm in, is saying that I need to receive the Spirit as a second event. That I have been saved, but I don't have the Holy Spirit. And I had never heard that. Yet I wanted to walk in submission to this church. And there were fine people love the Lord so much. And, and so they said, you have to receive the Spirit as a second event. And they said, you know, you'll never be really fulfilled until you receive the Spirit. And I'm thinking, if I don't have the Holy Spirit, what have I been doing? I've been praying and seeking the Lord. I've shared with people all over the place and they get saved. And I don't have the Holy Spirit. Boy, I better get the Spirit. And all the people who were intent on me getting the Spirit did almost nothing for the Lord. But tell people that they needed the Holy Spirit. So I was very active. And so I said, you know, if you think I need the Holy Spirit, pray for me. I'll get the Holy Spirit. So they all came around me and they prayed. They said, oh, now you have the Holy Spirit. I said, okay. You know, now i got the Holy Spirit. Now, now I can, uh, now what? 
I, I, I'm still going to do what I do. Now what are you guys going to do? And so I still was ministering to international students, had an international student ministry and doing these sort of things. And then I went back and visited the church that, that I had been discipled in as an undergraduate. And I told the pastor there, I said, yeah, I went to, went, went to graduate school and, and uh, uh, they prayed for me to get the Holy Spirit. And he said, huh? You've always had the Holy Spirit. Now, can you imagine what was going on in my little heart? Here I had two different groups to whom I wanted to be submitted. I had my pastor who had discipled me telling me I always had the Holy Spirit, and it was this, I never had to go through this prayer thing because the Holy Spirit was obviously there and working through me. Then I had this other group, clearly the pastor told me, you don't have the Holy Spirit, and you need to have the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to please everybody. But obviously, I had gotten this pastor in New York really saddened by my behavior, by subjecting myself to this prayer. And I, then when I came back to graduate school, I told them what the other pastors said, and then I sat in that pastor, that I wouldn't believe that something happened. That, and I was so confused. Have you ever really wanted to please God and do the right thing? And yet you were so confused on what to do. And if you really love God, there are going to be instances where you're torn. And you're not going to please anybody. But, you're torn, but you want so much to please God. Has that ever happened to anybody? Anybody here? Yeah, I mean, you want to please God. You want to make people happy. You want to do the right thing. And I was just saying, tell me what the right thing to do is. I'll do it. And they both had their passages of Scripture. We were looking at the same Bible. You know, in one state, I would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. I'd go to another state, oh, yeah, that's right. I... One of the ways of clearly explaining this is, in every case, when the Holy Spirit came as a separate event, Peter was there. Peter opened the door, except in this one event, when these people had never even heard that Jesus died. They were only had been discipled by John. And then they left the city. Every other time, the Holy Spirit was falling every time people got saved. Now, did I not have the Holy Spirit when I got saved, when I was alone in my room and God visited me and something great happened in my life? Did I not have the Holy Spirit? Some people would say, no, you didn't. But you know what I learned? Is if the people in the second church were very happy because now I had the Holy Spirit. They, so then I thought, God's not upset with me that I allowed them to pray for me. You want to pray for me that I get the Holy Spirit? I'll do it. I'll subject myself to that anytime. And while you're doing, pray for other things. Pray the outpouring of the Spirit. You know, the infilling, you want to pray for me? Fine, but also pray for the outpouring. Paul said he spoke of the outpouring of the Spirit. That they prayed for all the time. Let the Spirit pour out through me. Let the Spirit pour out through me. And what I couldn't understand is that all these people who said that they needed the Holy Spirit had like no Holy Spirit pouring out through them. They had said that they had been infilled, but nothing came out. So I don't think it's such a big deal. I love both camps. And I'm not sure I've made either camp happy with the, with the feeling that I love both camps. And I'm okay if... You, if, if if the Holy Spirit comes in one instant, when I'm saved, great. If you want to pray for me that I need a second event, pray for me. I'm okay with that. I don't think God really cares a whole lot. And people say, oh, no, it's a matter of good theology. You know, there's a lot of other struggles in my life that I've got to deal with as I fight against sin. 
and fight against the things that wear in my life that are sinful, that I think God is a whole lot more concerned about. I think He's a whole lot more concerned about who I touch. Am I being kind? Am I being merciful? Am I being gracious? And am I walking in the way that Jesus walked? Than whether I have precisely the right of theology on when it comes. I'll take it from both. And I love both camps. And I love both groups of people. So I don't think it's such a big thing. But did you know that churches divide over this? Did you know that? Have you ever seen such a thing? Churches divide over this. And I, I've always wondered why. One pastor says, you know, these, these people, they don't go very deep. You know, they're just shallow. And the other pastor feels, oh, these people, they, you know, they just never really get hold of the Spirit and really sense this. And I, I'm thinking, you're both wrong. I mean, you're very much the same. You both love the Lord, you're very deep, but I just kept my mouth shut because of what? I was just a kid. And I had two pastors, you know, giving me contrary advice. I just want to love God. I don't want to deal with all these problems that are between churches and between people. You will come to points in your life where you will feel like, like there's, there's this, this struggle. Am I doing the right thing? I've had people come to my home and just thinking that, you know, crazy things because they've, they've gotten people upset, they thought. Okay, let's just finish this passage. And it says, it says in, in uh, Matthew, go back to Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, 16, Matthew chapter 16. The last thing he says to them, he says, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is what's specific to Peter. Peter loosed this thing on earth. He called down the Holy Spirit. It happened to the Jews. It happened to the Samaritans. It happened to the Gentiles. And it was open and it was done forever. You know, it's interesting that, that the Bible never tells us to go around binding Satan. You can, bind, you can try to bind Satan all you want. Proclaim what you want. But I'm just saying the Bible tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him and he will flee from you. In verse 20, he follows the normal practice. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. You see what we said? This is the pattern. After the unpardonable sin, he wasn't sharing to the masses anymore that he was the Messiah. So much so, he said... Don't tell them now. It's not until after the resurrection that the word would come out through the apostles. He kept to this pattern, this ministry of silence. In my sharing my experience, I feel, I'll tell you what I feel, I feel that I've offended some people here because they are in one of the camps and not the other. And, they, and I feel as I may have offended some people that I would be so ready to accept both camps and to say, I'm okay with both. I feel that there's some people here that are kind of upset with me. But doesn't Jim Tour know the truth? No, I don't. Just kind of, just trying to walk this thing out just like you and discern this just like you. Have mercy on me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word for the truth of Your Word. You are so good. Praise be to Your name, O Lord. Praise be to Your name. Father, I pray for these young people that You would cause them to be settled in their own hearts as to what You're calling them to in their walk with You in this regard. For as the Scriptures say, why do You judge Your brother? 
before his own master, he will stand or fall. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Father, I pray for these young people that they would not become judgmental toward others who may not believe exactly like they believe on subtle points. Father, I pray that you would draw their hearts to see the good and to see the important things. Father, I pray your grace be upon these young people. And Lord, for those who have never come before you and humbled themselves before you and asked you to come into their lives, to cleanse them of their sins and come into their lives, Father, I pray that you would draw those folks right now, that they would go to a place and they would say, Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life that they may behold that which is blessed indeed, that they may realize that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of the living God. Father, do that in their lives, I pray, and have mercy on them. In the name of Jesus, Amen.